good morning, Calvary Chapel, South Jersey, and everyone else who might be viewing us via uh, Facebook, maybe. I know there's some glitches there, but uh, live stream, hopefully, you're tuned in. And uh, as I said in my prayer, Jerry and I was talking like, you know, if this had taken place 20, 25 years ago, um, we would just, uh, we wouldn't be able to do this. We wouldn't be able to come into your living rooms or wherever you're watching it and share God's word. And the one thing that I wanted uh, in the beginning of, of this um, this season is to try to keep the church just um, some to be normal, to have normalcy. And one of the ways we can do that is to continue our studies. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, I, I was there in the book of Daniel and I was told we had... Over 900 uh, views of that Bible study. It just blows my mind. And uh, we'll figure out what the numbers are after this. But uh, we're just going to keep our studies. We're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus. And um, and, and what a miracle. I, you know, as I'm doing this outlining, I'm, I'm discovering that um, we're going into the season, um, the resurrection season. Uh, the world calls it Easter. We kind of like to call it the day of resurrection around here. But uh, as Juan had made the announcement, you know, going in towards uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, then then our resurrection service. Um, again, Palm Sunday, we're going to have an online uh, 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 communion service with you guys. And, and so... I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm so blessed, but I want to keep things normal. And so w- where we find ourselves this morning is Matthew chapter 26. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26. We'll cover the first 30 verses um, this week, and then next week we'll cover uh, the rest of the chapter. But uh, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Follow along uh, if you would, please, starting with verse 1, we'll read through the text and then uh, we'll stand and we'll pray over the scriptures. Matthew 26, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, consulted how they might take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, no, not, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, In the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on the head on his head. That be Jesus's head. As he sat at meat, when the disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying to what purpose is this waste for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work unto me. For you have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. 
For in that she had poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be uh, preached in the world, there shall also this, that is, woman hath done, to be told for a memorial of, of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenant, they made a promise with him for thirty pieces of silver. From that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? He said, he said to them, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The master saith, The time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. As they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. They were exceeding sorrowful and began um, every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and he said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of it. For this is the, uh, my blood of a new uh, testament, which is uh, shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say unto you, I will not drink therefore or henceforth of this this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Now, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. If you would, please take Bible in hand and uh, stand and let's pray over this text. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be together and to be able to study your word together. Especially now, Lord, with just the craziness that's going on. The uncertainties and, you know, just not knowing what to do. But we know this, that on this given day, Father, the day in which we come together, we know to study your word. And we we pray that our hearts, Lord... Is prepared to receive your word. That all our cares, Lord, we have cast them upon you. And we do humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So, Holy Spirit, would you please be our chief instructor this morning? Lord, please help me. 
this is still kind of weird, Lord, a little awkward to, to teach into cameras. So I pray for just clarity. Help me just to slow down a tad, Father, and just be able to speak to my dear brothers and sisters that are home. So thank you again for your word and pray for the anointing upon it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said together, amen and amen. Again, we come into that season where uh, we start to look forward ahead of, uh, in a few weeks, celebrating the resurrection day of Jesus. And now we're looking at those days, a couple days before that event would take place, the trial and, of course, um, you know, the, the crucifixion, the burial and resurrection. So uh, we find ourselves here at that, that place of the, we call it the Last Supper, the last Passover meal that he would have with his disciples. And it's obvious that what we're looking at this morning is that whole scene with the disciples, including Judas Iscariot and the, the betrayal there. Uh, but the one thing that I want to kind of point out to you, though, is and talk a little bit about, it's just that Passover meal. Um, the Passover meal began way back in the Jewish history there when they were in captivity in, in Egypt. Of course, you know that story uh, where there were those ten plagues that God had uh, judged Egypt with and the last being uh, where he would send his death angel. And um, Moses instructed the Hebrews to take the blood of a lamb and to drain its blood and to put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil of of their homes. And of course, the instructions were that as they did that, the death angel would come to kill the, the firstborn, but the death angel would pass over the uh, the home in which the, the blood had been applied. And of course, thus where we get the term and the festival feast of Passover. It's the old system, though, however, looking back. Um, and even in their hearts, as things went along, they understood that the system wasn't um, complete, that it was incomplete, and that they were even anticipating for something greater uh, something where God would make another way for the Jews to connect with Jehovah, to connect with their, with their father. They understood that the series of animal sacrifices, as time would go on, uh, the shedding of blood would not be enough. You know, they read the Old Testament prophets. They read prophets or prophecies like Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. But just to... Pull, pull part of it out. It says, Behold, the days are come, and saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant uh, with the house of Israel. He goes on and he says, I will put my law in their hearts and um, in their minds and write them on their hearts. And thus they were always anticipating something even greater. In fact, that would be vocalized even when they were taking the Passover meal together. You know, part of the Passover meal, just to kind of give you a little bit of history there, as the meal would go on, one of the children of the families, and they would be specifically chosen, would ask the question, you know, to the father there, like, what makes this night different from any other night? And of course, the father again would explain 
um, the the Passover night uh, in which the blood was applied. He, he would th- then go into more of their history, how they were in the wilderness and how God provided for them. But the whole night, it wasn't just to sit down to take uh, uh, to take part of a meal, but it was to 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 reminisce to think of their history to think about what their fathers forefathers had gone through it was the explanation of all that happened in Egypt how Israel was in bondage and God would send a deliverer and uh, and then again that special night where they would find Pharaoh would finally give that declaration let them go you know and they then started that wilderness journey you know, but they always had uh, anticipated um, um, a, a different venue or a different way to 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 get in touch with God again. And uh, in fact, um, what we see in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament is well, uh, there was a guy by the name of Graham Scrooge, and which is a, a theologian from Britain. He said this in his book. He said, if you cut the Bible anywhere, it should bleed, um, meaning that, you know, it should show the death and burial and, and the redemption price for humanity. He also said all pre-New Testament history books looked forward towards the cross and all the post-New Testament history books should look back to the cross. In other words, the cross should be the very center of our Bible. And in fact, when you study it from Genesis to Revelation, even going back to the Garden of Eden, there is that um, the animal sacrifice, again, that there would have to be something sacrificed for the sins of humanity. But getting back to our text here... Um, in Matthew chapter 26, it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he says to his disciples, he says, You know that after two days is the Passover. So that's how close he is now of, of, of going to the cross to die for the sins of humanity. Um, he's in his final days. He goes on and he continues to say, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, again, you and I, we think of the crucifixion as something historical. But for them to be told that the one that they love, the one they believed that God sent, is going to die a criminal's death. He's going to die a capital punishment, Romans capital punishment, the crucifixion, brutal way to death. That's why in many time, in many places in the New Testament, when he would talk about crucifixion, they would reject that message. It just seemed absurd to them. It would be equivalent today by uh, if someone would say that Jesus was uh, if he was here today would receive lethal injection. We would just say that's absurd. But he's talking to his disciples and he's kind of giving them the heads up. He's going to be delivered to be crucified. It also tells us in verse 3 that when the chief priest, the scribes, the elders of the people assembled um, at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, the reason is they began to plot how they were going to crucify that, to do that very thing, to hand him over to the Romans in order for Jesus to die. Um, why did they use trickery? 
Why were they trying to use deception? Well, because they could not find any fault in the guy. They tried to entrap him during his earthly ministry. Um, they tried to um, false accusation. And actually, well, we're going to go through this next week. But when they handed him over to Pontius Pilate and he he examined him thoroughly, it would be that Roman praetorium or that Roman governor who would say, I find no fault in this guy. And you can't still find any fault in Jesus. You can examine him all you want, but he's still the faultless Lamb of God. Perfect to die for the sins of of humanity. So they're trying to plot, taking by trickery. Well, they didn't want to do it that night because they didn't want to start an uproar. You'll notice that in verse 5. It's just this little bit more on on the Passover or um, the festivals that the Jews would celebrate. There were three mandatory feasts that they had to observe. One is right here, the Passover. The other is Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost. And then there was also another feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. But the Feast of Passover was the greatest. It was more... With its celebration, it was more exciting. It's probably equivalent to our our Christmas with with our kids. Um, You know, uh, 12 years and up, it was mandatory. All Jewish males, 12 years and up, were mandatory to go to Jerusalem. If they lived in a 15-mile radius, they they had to attend by Jewish law. If, If they were outside of those perimeters and they lived further away... It was every Jewish male's dream, child's dream, that one day they would celebrate um, Passover there in the, in the city walls of Jerusalem. In fact, there would be a statement, next year in Jerusalem they, they would sing. And they would also sing, may the Messiah speedily come in that day. So again, the anticipation that something greater was coming for them, you know. Um, Now, Flavius Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, just to kind of give you a mind's eye picture of what Jerusalem might have looked looked like during that time period. Flavius said that at that particular time, 256,000 lambs were being slaughtered during the Passover festival. And I don't know if you can picture that in your mind. You know, there are some people who like to do the math, too. And uh, according to Jewish law, one lamb per 10 people. And um, that gives you a kind of a close conservative estimation on how many people might have been there during the Passover festival there. And I believe it, it came up to 2.5 million people right there in that tiny little city of Jerusalem. And someone else came up with this thing where they said it could be that um, the, the amount of priests that were serving at that time was killing up to two lambs per minute, cutting their throats uh, during the two hour period, you know. And again, you can just imagine this too, gang, just sort of a side note there. We're also told that um, Herod had built an aqueduct to bring it down onto the Temple Mount in order to wash that the blood of those 256,000 lambs down off 
off the Temple Mount and flows into the place called the Kidron Valley. And it is the same valley that Jesus would have crossed over to go up into the temple area um, when he would go back up there into the Temple Mount. And I just, you, you think you wonder sometimes, you know, the blood is flowing down into the Kindred Valley as Jesus is coming across. Is he thinking, tomorrow will be my blood that will be shed um, for mankind? But anyway, it kind of gives you an idea. Also, there's this mad rush to to whitewash all the tombs, all the sepulchers, because according to their law, if you accidentally bumped into one, you were considered unclean, and then you'd have to go through all these ceremonial rituals in order for you to become clean again, and there'd be a possibility you wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover because you were considered unclean. I mean, it was just a madhouse during this time, and yet Jesus has taken the time to sit with his boys and just say, Hey, it's time to take this Passover meal with you. It always happened on the 14th day of Nisan. There's kids singing in the streets. There's riddles. There's games. There's great excitement. Now, it tells us in verse 6 that when Jesus was in Bethany, and again, at the house of Simon the leper, uh, this is a place where Jesus uh, spent many nights. In fact, Jesus never spent a night in Jerusalem. The only night he ever spent in Jerusalem was the night of his trial before the day he would be crucified. But every other time he would be in this little village called Bethany. And then it tells us that a woman came to him having an alabaster flax of very costly um, uh, fragrant oil. She pours it on his head as he sat at the table Now, it tells us that the disciples saw this and they became very indignant. And they're asking, why the ways? Now, before I go into that, just again, so you can picture the scene in your mind. It's the Last Supper. We know this as the, the, you know, the, the last Passover meal the Lord had. There's a minimum of 17 people there. We know we have Jesus, the 12 apostles. We know we have Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. We have Simon. Who was, it says Simon the leper, but it's ex-leper. He had been healed. And, and so when we add all that up, we have roughly around 17 people, um, there in this, in this room. We're also told, um, by other historians that in this particular area, there's a leper colony. Um, and most likely this is where Simon the leper had once lived. We're also told by another group of people that there was these places, they were dwelling places, that were called sick houses. So there was there was a lot of people there that were considered sick. And, you know, it, and again, it just go, it follows suit when they used to call Jesus the friend of publicans and sinners and tax collectors and such. Here he is in the last final days of his life. He's still hanging out with these lovely people, people that had been rejected, people who had been outcasts. And he still takes time to sit with them and uh, and to minister to them, you know, he's never rejected anyone, folks. Never rejected anyone from to come to him. A child, and maybe you're even watching. Maybe somebody said, "Hey, tune into this church." Maybe that's you. I just want you to know. I don't care. I don't. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. The Bible tells us if you come to Him, He will in no wise cast you aside. You'll, you'll never be rejected by Him. You come to Him, you confess with your mouth He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart that He's even alive today. Repent of your sin. 
man, he will embrace you and he will make you part of even like this kind of, of group. But anyway, getting back to to our study here, you know, it tells us that they were indignant there in verse eight. You know, now just again, try to stay with me and I'm going to try to slow down just a tad. You know, they're asking why this waste? Now, when you're reading the other counts uh, in, in the other Gospels, um, you find out that it's Judas Iscariot who's spearheading this whole complaint session. Uh, this um, this disapproval, uh, you know, um, that why is it? Now, this spike nard, very costly, and a lot of people have different opinions on the exact worth of it. You know, how much was this alabaster box worth? Some say, well, this could have been Mary's um, dowry that she was saving uh, for her wedding. Could have been that. It also could have been something that was um, um, something she was saving for another day. We do know it's probably equivalent today for about $10,000 and maybe even a little more. It is such a fragrance. Like if you were to break open just a little bit, you just can't get rid of the, the fragrance. It permeates to wherever you're at and um, and it's and it lingers. Um, we know that um, it comes from. Um, the southern parts of India, it had to be uh, imported. It comes from a, a, a plant uh, where its roots are anywhere between 3 to 12 inches deep. There's um, thorns on it, and you can only get droplets from it. They use it for ritual baths. They use it for burials. And uh, and again, they're looking at this. Here, here she comes. Jesus is uh, there sitting and she begins to pour this very, very costly perfume. And um, now Judas Iscariot, he's the one that spears heads this disapproval, you know. And uh, what we're told in John chapter 12, verse 6, when we read the same account, it says this he said, not that he cared for the poor. Remember the complaint? Why is she wasting this? We could take this. We could sell it and then give the money to the poor. But it says again, John twelve six. this he said not because he cares for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. He was the treasurer of the disciples there. And he used to take what was put in. He just would steal from them. He was more concerned about the money than, than the poor. That's obvious. The word thief there in John chapter 12 is the word kleptus. And uh, we get this, the, the English word uh, klepto, uh, klepto or kleptomaniac. This is somebody who's got a problem with just stealing. The word literally means to steal by a careful prescribed plan. And so she, he, he, he wasn't about the poor. But Jesus responds to this, and it just shows us our Lord's heart. He says in verse 10, when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? Why are you bothering this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you, you have the poor with you always. But me, you don't always have, you know. And then he goes, For the pouring of this fragrant oil, the spikenard upon my body, she did it. For my burial. 
I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial for or to her. Again, guys, please think of the just think of the scene. You know, there they are. She comes in. Does she know? Does she know what she's doing or the reason? Was she one who just listened intently to Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. Was there something in her heart? You know, where she said, this is possibly true, but that Jesus is going to die. And she goes in to starts to prepare him for that burial. See, we really don't know. All we know is there was some love relationship that she had for him where she didn't care about what she was saving it for. She just knew that for such a time as this, this is the right thing to do. And here she comes and she anoints him. The oils, the fragrance starts to permeate through the whole building. They're indignant. You know, and here the thing is, and I think that there's a lesson to learn is this, you know. That, well, he says the dead you're always going to have with you. See, he's quoting something out of the Old Testament. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 15, 15 or fifteen eleven, for the poor um, will never cease from your land. Therefore, I command you, saying, "You shall you shall open your hand wide to the poor, your your brother, to the poor and the needy in your land." In other words, there's always going to be that opportunity for you to minister to the poor, but there are going to be some things you could lose opportunity to. And she would have lost opportunity to do something so precious, so loving, so prophetic. She would have lost the opportunity. What what is um, the lesson? Well, number one, don't be so quick to judge. You know, don't be one of those that like to go around. You like to go around taking a speck out of your brother's eye when maybe there's a beam in our own eyes. Well, you know the text, it's there, Luke 2, 42. First remove the plank from your own eye, just and then you'll see, uh, see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. See, they were trying to remove a log out of Mary's eye, when, or a speck out of her eye, when they had a log in their own. But that's one lesson we can learn from that. The other lesson is, again, going back to she would have lost the opportunity if she had waited. You know, sometimes... God lays particular things on our hearts. Maybe he'll say, do you say to me, hey, I want you to do this today. I want you to go to your neighbor. I want you to pour out your love on her. I want you to go take care of somebody or maybe go tell someone about me. This this is the for such a time as this. This is the day. This is when you have to do it. And if we procrastinate, if we don't take that opportunity, we can lose that opportunity. And we could have, you know, Sometimes I just like to share my own stories, but don't want to really share the stories of other people. But uh, back in 1978, I was still in Bible school. And uh, and for a week, the Lord had impressed on my heart just to give mom a call and just to tell her uh, I love her and thinking about her. And I kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And uh, I, I think it was even during when we were, the final exams were going on. So you can imagine I'm cramming, I'm doing what I, all I can. But it, that, that, that sense that I needed to do that became stronger and stronger 
till one evening I couldn't even sleep. And so I drove from from the Bible school to where mom was living. And it was a little later in the evening. And I went upstairs and she's laying in bed. She she had come home from the hospital and they hadn't told me. And, and I got next to her and I just said, hey, mom, I just want you to know that I love you. And I wish I was here a little sooner, but I love you with all my heart. And she kind of looked at me and smiled and she said, I love you, too. And that evening she passed away. If I had waited another day, I would have lost opportunity. See, this is why it's so important that you and I have such a love relationship with the Lord. Because that's when he talks with us or maybe he just impresses on our hearts. Don't wait for this. Go do it now. Look, Look at the days we live now. Don't wait to reach out to somebody. You know, email them, text them. We live in a great age where that can be done. Start telling people about the love because we might lose the opportunity to ever do it again. And that's another lesson I take away from that. Um, not to be so quick to judge when someone's loving on Jesus. And then for me personally is not to put it off. I've been told a lot, many times, man, Harry, you're such a procrastinator. And I know that. Working on it, praying on it. But there's some things I've learned now when it, when it becomes comes between me and the Lord and he's asked me to do something, I want to jump on it right away. And of course, if you guys were here, I would look out at you and I'll go, amen, or give me a fat and you guys would respond. So, hey, if you're at home, give me an amen on that one. (laughs) Amen. So going back to our study here, um, looking at verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. Now, Iscariot's not his last name. Um, Ascaroth, it's, it was an area, and that was where Judah was, or Judas was from. He then goes to the chief priest. As soon as he sees, oh man, they're not gonna, they're not, they're not gonna pawn this off. They're not gonna go to the pawn shop and sell this bike nard. Uh, when he saw that, he says, that's it, plan B. And he goes to the chief priest there and he says to them, what are you willing to give me? Such a selfish, selfish thing to say. If I deliver him to you, they counted out out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time on, um, Judas began to look for ways to betray him, how to deceive him. You know, uh, Francis Bacon once said, a bad, uh, a bad man is worse when he pretends to be a saint. And that's so true. Um, you know, you just hope. You pray that you, you don't find the Judases of the world in your church. Places that we fellowship But the truth of the matter is you do find them. And they don't look like men who wear those sinister handlebar bar mustaches going, he, you know, and who can I rip off now? Um, but they are, you know, people go to church and some of them don't have the purest motives. Hey, there's some people in the church that calls, calls themselves ministers or um, but they have a problem with kleptus, stealing, kleptomaniac, um, fleecing the flock, false claims, false accusations, you know, that kind of thing. 
um, trying to extort the church. The Judases exist today. And I don't want to even be labored at. You know, it's, it's kind of an uneasy subject to me. But again, if God lays something on your heart and you're in love with him, you're a, you're a Mary, you know, or a, a Martha. Mary's the busy one, but Martha, she was a lover, a worshiper. If you're that and Jesus lays on your heart to go love on Jesus, just do it. Don't worry about what other people might think or, 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 or what's around you. Just be obedient and, um, and don't procrastinate. Love on him, you know. But um, some people have a theory that Judas Iscariot, the reason why he did this was he was trying to force Jesus's hand. You know, to make him into that political um, Messiah. Remember, the Jews, their ideas on the political Messiah or the Messiah would be he would be a political leader to remove the Roman yoke off their shoulders, to establish a kingdom, a physical kingdom, to return the scepter back to Judah, the right to rule and reign themselves. But you and I both know that what Jeremiah the prophet was alluding to was a spiritual kingdom, a law now written in their hearts, you know, and, and God dealing with the inner man. They were still looking for something physical. Judas wanted to see a political, rich kingdom. And when he did, didn't see that in Jesus, he said, okay, I'll get mine. I'll, I'll betray him and I'll turn him over for, hey, 30, 30 pieces of silver sounds like a good number. Not realizing that the prophet Zacharias prophesied that, that that's exactly what would happen. And that's in Zechariah chapter 11. But um, uh, he turns, he, he's looking for opportunity. Now, getting back to verse 17, where it says, Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Oh, where do you want, you know, us to prepare for the, to eat the Passover meal? And he says, Well, then go into a certain city and say to the, say, and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So according to Luke chapter 22, he sends Peter and uh, and John. And um, at this time, James wasn't with him. It just seems that little inner core of guys with Jesus was always Peter, James and John. But it was these this little inner circle. And so. And so they, they go and they the, towards this area where they're going to prepare for the meal. Now, again, uh, if you read the account in Luke chapter 22, let me I'll read it to you there. There, 22 verse 11. He says, behold. When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into the house. Which he enters. And then you shall say to the minister of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, the reason why they would know is because this is an odd thing, you know, for a man to carry a jug of water on their head. Normally, the women did that. The women would. And so here comes a man across the courtyard there and there's a guy there. So they know here's the guy. That's the guy that we need to ask 
for his room to have the Passover meal in. Verse 19 says, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, he says this, surely I say to you, one of you are going to betray me. Now, again, um, let me kind of give you a kind of a mind's eye picture of this this meal. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, his work on the Last uh, Supper um, isn't really accurate. And in fact, it's inaccurate. The, uh, he has them sitting at a long, straight table, sitting on chairs. Um, really, the table back in those days would be very low to the ground. Um, to eat at that table, you would put one arm on, on the table and then your legs would then extend towards the rear. And uh, it would be in a U-shape. They called it a triclinium, a triclinium, a, a table with three sides. And so as they're sitting there, um, the host, the important people, I should say, one would be on his right, one would be on his left. So most likely John the Beloved was close enough to him on his right hand because it tells us that John leaned into his breast. Judas is on the other side, the left side, because he's close enough to dip into a jar or, or, or um, a jar into the spices and eat with Jesus at this particular time. So, again, when when they came, when people would come in, they would uh, take their seats Hand, elbow on the table, feet extended backwards. In fact, just kind of going down a bunny trail here, when Jesus stood up and he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash the feet of the disciples, they were already extended backwards and he was behind them, each one washing their feet. Just, just amazing Bible study there. But it tells us again in verse 20 that when he came down, he sat with his disciples and he says to them, you're going to betray me. They became exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say, is it I? Is it I? So if you could just in your mind's eyes, just hear this commotion. Wait a minute, Lord. Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? You know, and he says there in verse 23, no, it's the guy who's going to dip his hand in the dish with me. That's the guy that's going to betray me. And then again, he gives commentary in verse 24. The son of man indeed goes just as is written of him. In other words, I told you I was going to be handed over and I'm going to be scrutinized and beat and crucified. He goes, that's going to happen. But well unto the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Again, well unto the Judas Iscariot. He said it would have been better if this guy had never been born. Never been born. Judas, who was betraying him, answered, said, well, Rabbi, is it I? Now, remember, this is the way Matthew gives the account. He said, you have said it. Now, you have to ask your question, ask a question. Why would Jesus even pick this guy to be one of his disciples? See, if you go back into Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it says this. It came to pass in those days when he went out of the mountain to pray. He continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was days... He calls his disciples. Jesus knew what he was doing when he called Judas. And, and, and I guess the solid scriptural reason that he did is because God picked him. His father picked him. And, it ha- and scriptures need to be fulfilled. Again, going back to the, to the prophecies of Zacharias. That someone in the eternal would betray God's son and it would be Judas Iscariot. Now, was it that he was trying, Judas trying to force his hand? We don't know. All we know is he was called the son of perdition. 
And it would have been better if the man never had been born, according to Jesus. But I'll tell you what, also, Jesus loved him. There's no doubt in my mind. I think it broke Jesus's heart when he saw Judas reach over to dip that same bread into the same spice he was. In fact, if you in it's in Luke or pardon me, John chapter thirteen, uh, around verse twenty six, it says, "It is him who shall uh, I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it." Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the sign of Simon. And now, after the piece of bread, after he dipped the piece of bread, it says Satan entered him, and Jesus said, "What you do, go do it quickly." What a it broke our Lord's heart. And as who is he talking to? What you got to do? Go ahead and do it quickly. Was it to both? But it was said. Verse 26 says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he broke it. And when he gave it to his disciples, he said, take it, eat. It's my body. He takes the cup. He gave thanks. He and then he and, and saying, drink it. Uh, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant or new testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. He says, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a new hymn, they went out um, to the Mount of Olives. Now, listen, gang, I'm going to wrap this up now. And again, some of this we'll cover again next week. Um uh, in our study, uh, what's going on here? Of course, we know it's the the the, the last meal that he's going to have with this disciple. I love the fact he says, "I'm not going to do this again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God." There's going to come a day when we're going to celebrate again this meal with Jesus. Um, but this is a, f- a very formal meal to them. Some have called it the Seder meal, something very organized. Um, we know that stories are being told and there's a lot of laughing and, and, and celebration. There is singing going on. Um, but this meal revolves around four glasses of wine. And I want to explain to you these four glasses or these four cups in closing. The first cup that would have been lifted up like this would be called the cup of blessing. And they would say this, blessed art thou, Lord God, king of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine. And then dish or the plates are being passed around and bread is being tossed around, you know. And um, and then during that time period, another cup would be lifted up and it was called the cup of judgment. Now, the cup of judgment, this is where they begin also to remember the exodus, the judgment upon Egypt. The ten plagues. They would then at that time too, in a a symbolic way, take the wine and they would sprinkle it. They wouldn't sprinkle it on anything particular. But that represented the sprinkling of the blood on the lentil and the the two doorposts um, for the death angel to see and pass over their homes. After that, now between, by the way, between cup two and cup three, which is called the cup of redemption... They're eating their meal. But towards the end of their meal, another cup would be raised. And it was called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. And that right away would remind you and I of something that um, that that even um, Paul the Apostle would allude to about the cup, the blood for the redemption of man. 
They looked at it as the blood of the bulls and the blood of the goats and redemption. Our way for one more year we can now have a right relationship with God. That's why that cup would be held up. The fourth cup would be called the cup of praise. And that really it would be the cup of Hillel. It would be the, where they would start to sing. In fact, that's what we see there in verse 30 where it says they sang or they sung a hymn and then they left. They would always end with that cup lifting it up and worshiping. Well, we don't, we're not taking communion this Sunday. We will on the 5th. But as we close out in our last song, you know, you know, in a symbolic way, it's a cup of blessing. God has truly blessed this gang. You know, we don't look back. I mean, we don't look back to the cross. Uh, pardon me. We don't look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. And we remember, guys, what the cross represents. The opportunity now as children of God that we can sing a new song. And we can worship a king who, who loves us. A God who loves us so much he sent that king. To us, like what Peter says, man, it's no longer by the blood of bulls and goats, but now by the precious blood of the lamb. As Paul says, now we can go into a more perfect sanctuary where we can actually call him Abba Father. We don't have to fear the sin issues anymore because we can hold up a cup of redemption that Jesus redeemed us back to the father. And uh, and again, as we just begin to prepare, I'm going to pray and then Richard's going to end us in a song. But listen, guys, tune in on Wednesday. We'll go through Daniel. But just closing out today, if you're with your family, hey, grab some hand sanitizers, whatever you got to do. But take your wife's hand and your husband's hand. Take your children's hand. Maybe you're with a friend. Maybe you can go arm in arm. But let's worship. Let's close out our service. By worshiping together. Love you guys. I'll see you on Wednesday.